Hi, this is Nick Vogel, and you're listening to Bump Set Psych. Hello and welcome to Bump Set Psych, your go-to podcast all about peak performance, the human experience, and learning from special individuals who are standouts in their field. I'm Nick Vogel, former professional athlete turned Division I volleyball coach and performance enhancement enthusiast. And I'm Dr. Shane Sines, a clinical and sports psychologist dedicated to helping people achieve peak performance in sport and in life. And Nick, it is my great honor to get this podcast started with you, my friend. I am really excited for episode one. We've had this in the works for a long time, and what better way to start it off than us interviewing each other? Absolutely. So that means episode number one, I will be doing my best to interview you. Episode number two, you will be doing your best to interview me. And usually we'll be tag teaming, interviewing our our wonderful guests, but we want the audience to get to know us a little bit better as we get this adventure started. Yeah, we figured if you're going to be listening to us ask these questions and putting things in context with all the guests that we're going to have in the future, it might be nice to have a little bit of background on the two people that are running the show. So let, let's get things started. So Nick Vogel, you mentioned in, in our introduction that you are a former professional athlete. Tell us a little bit about your background as a, as a professional athlete. Well, my professional career was relatively short-lived in comparison to some of the other awesome volleyball players that are out there doing their thing right now. Um, but I did have the opportunity to play for three years professionally overseas. I played one year in Greece and two years over in Germany for a couple of different clubs. Uh, the last year that I played, I played for VFB, Fall F Bay Friedrichshafen in Southern Germany. And it was a really incredible team. Now in the subsequent years, a lot of the members of that team have won gold medals, have been Olympians, and have gone on to do some really special things in the volleyball world. Incredible. Well, and then tell tell people what you're up to nowadays. I know after retiring in 2015, you, you got into coaching. And so we're definitely, we want to cover all of that. But tell us where, where you're at currently. Well, currently I am back in San Diego. I finished up a four-year stint as the assistant coach at DePaul University out in Chicago. Uh, that was the most recent collegiate job that I've had. And yeah, after I retired from playing, I got into coaching full-time. But coaching was always something that I was really passionate about. I coached youth volleyball and did summer camps and things when I was still in college. I worked for an organization called Gold Medal Squared, and they would sort of outsource us to run a specific style camp for high school teams all around the country. And that was really fun for a while. That's where I started to get really into what it meant to help shape these young players. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, when I was overseas playing professionally, I got involved with the local clubs. And the system overseas is pretty cool. Under the same umbrella of the professional team and their name, you'll have a U21 team, a U18 team, a U15 team, and all the way down to the youth levels of, you know, seven and 10 year olds playing, all wearing the same jerseys, 
all under the same umbrella with the same name and cheering for that pro team. So while I was there, I got to be involved with that local club that I was a partner of. And I got to do some youth league coaching, some adult league coaching. And I really sort of fell in love with just being around the game more, but also more importantly, helping shape these young athletes. Right on. It sounds like you've really taken that and and run away with it. Yeah, it became something that I was so passionate about because it fulfilled more for me than just the volleyball. I got to really instill certain lessons in the people that I was coaching. But again, I think more importantly, it taught me more about myself and how I saw the game and how I was as a human being, how I could be better day in and day out. So coaching has been wonderful to me. So let's let's definitely cover coaching in your playing career, but even before we get all of that, an important element of our podcast is going to be about the human experience. So mm-hmm. all the more reason for us to kind of go back to the beginning, and and if you don't mind sharing a little bit with the audience about where you're from, where you grew up, a little bit about your personal background. Sure, sure. Well, I'm born and raised in San Diego, sunny San Diego, California, a pretty awesome place, if I do say so myself. Um, But I grew up kind of in the East County part of San Diego, so further out east, going up into the mountains. Um, It's a pretty isolated area in some ways, especially before you get a license and can drive yourself around the city. Mm -hmm. And the people that I grew up around out there we're all pretty athletic. There wasn't a whole lot to do in that area. And so we went outside, we played sports, we climbed trees. We had a really good time learning how to be coordinated and play sports and have a great time. And I was also super fortunate the middle school that I went to, they put together this incredible after-school program where the PE teachers would stay late and they would supervise And every day after school would be a different sport. So Mm. if I remember right, like Mondays and Wednesdays were basketball and everybody would just show up. You'd sign your name on a sheet. They'd divide up into teams. They'd play a big tournament. Well, Tuesday and Thursday were cross country. Fridays were soccer days. And you're just constantly being surrounded by athletic people who want to learn the sport and be better and just have fun competing. So... A lot of the people that came out of that little town of Alpine here in San Diego mm-hmm. went on to be athletic. You know, you saw it in the, the local high schools and there were a, a good number of professional athletes. The percentages coming out of that little area were, were pretty high. They were outside the norm. Wow. So that was a little bit about growing up in that part of East County and then ultimately going to high school, participating in sports, which for me growing up, I was a tennis player and a soccer player. Um, I played basketball. I did some summer league basketball things, but you know, for high school here in Southern California, basketball and soccer are the same season. And I was gung-ho soccer. I was in love with the game of soccer. And so that was really fun. Uh, I was also a tennis player, like I mentioned, and so Mm. those were the sports that took up most of my time. And playing on the soccer team is a fun little callback to our history. Your cousin Jordan Risley was on my soccer team when I was, I think, a sophomore or maybe a junior in high school. Yeah, And Jordan... First of all, Jordan is a, a hilarious individual. Uh, can't wait to see that guy again. He just and sent me a he just sent me a picture this morning, and he's got a great beard, rocking right now, like just 
Grizzly like, Rizzly? Oh, very Grizzly Rizzly. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see it. Um, but yeah, Jordan was great because he was a year older than most of us that were on that team. And so he kind of had the team dad thing going on and he showed us the ropes and kept us in line and, you know, drove us around before we got our licenses. Jordan was a really influential person to me. And I remember him pulling me aside towards the end of the season and said, look, man, you're, you're awesome. You're trying so hard. You're just not that great at this sport. You're not built for (laughs) soccer. Uh, We're so happy you're here, but here's what you need to do. You need to come out and play with us on the volleyball team this year. And similar to soccer and basketball, volleyball and tennis are the same seasons here in Southern California. And so I never really got around to playing volleyball until the end of my sophomore into my junior year. And Jordan got me involved. And I really thank him for that because it was a train that left the station and it just took off for me. It was a sport that I fell in love with immediately that I was built for, that I just naturally had kind of body motions that fit this sport. I'm Mm. also not the most aggressive person in the world. So like getting dirty in the paint and basketball and throwing elbows is not really my thing. So having us all be on one side of the net, it's nice to be able to talk your trash and have a net dividing in between. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that got me going. And so I played a couple of years of, of high school volleyball and, uh, ultimately I, I got recruited and played some club here in San Diego for a a club called Epic Volleyball Club, which is Mm -hmm. unfortunately no longer a thing. Um, But that's what really got me playing at a much more competitive level and playing on a national scale and then, in the end, getting recruited to play in college. Let's definitely talk about your time in college. You you obviously went on to, to be part of the decorated history of the UCLA men's volleyball team. I want to kind of just touch on some some of the other sports, though, that you initially fell in love with, tennis and soccer. Mm-hmm. What drew you to those sports initially? Well, tennis was something that kind of came from my parents. Um, they were wonderful at keeping me involved in all sorts of things. So like most of us when you're, I don't know, three or five years old, I think I did tumbling and I did karate and I did all these other extracurriculars. And tennis was one of the ones that came from my parents. My uh, Mm. parents both played a little bit of tennis. My dad's a pretty big tennis fan, but my family doesn't have deep rooted history in athletics. They, you know, moved around, they played some things and did some stuff, Mm. but sports weren't a major part of my upbringing. Um, but they did involve me and they, they got me involved in a, uh, a local tennis club and some lessons and some competitions. And so that kind of got me going there. And then soccer was just something that I fell in love with, uh, in elementary school at recess, there was just one kid who would bring a soccer ball and there were 20 of us that would get together and play. And that was just recess every single day, five days a week. And I fell in love with the game and I like, little coordinated tricky things and so we would just stand around in a circle and juggle the soccer ball and try to do different tricks and things like that so that always just kind of excited me and and was fun for me to play around with and so yeah soccer had a special place in my heart and and do you still have a club that you follow you know, I I love watching soccer. For me, it's more about the national teams. I get really excited about the Euro, the World Cup, the World Champs, all that sort of stuff. Um, 
I, I'm a bad pro soccer fan. I like a lot of <laughs> players and a lot of teams, uh, especially while I was living over there and having a history of yeah. German uh, lineage in my family. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. a huge Dortmund fan. My dad was born and raised in Dortmund, Germany. And okay, so, I, I have to, I have to say, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I <laughs> just assumed you'd be a Bayern fan. Yeah, that, you know that's, was, that's my bad. I apologize. There was, there was a time when Bayern and Dortmund were both incredibly good, and yeah. they made it to the Champions League final against one another, and that was a tough day because I do like Bayern. I think Bayern's yeah. a pretty cool club, but my my heart bleeds yellow and black. Oh, that, I'm so glad to hear. That. We'll have to talk uh, Dortmund a little bit more because they've. I mean, I'm biased because they've had some some Americans come through and, mm. you know, so I would watch some of their matches. But I don't know if we've ever talked. I'm a big Man United fan. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So enough about other pro athletes. We're talking about you. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so you make your way to UCLA. Tell us about what the recruiting process was like for you because unlike other athletes who maybe you know pick up their sport in elementary school mm. you get introduced to volleyball sophomore year and what a quick turnaround then to be on this fast track to getting recruited to play division one yeah the story that I've told probably a good number of times in my life, but it's kind of like one of those old cartoons when there's this speeding train coming by and somebody grabs onto it and gets whisked away and their shoes are left behind in like a cloud of dust and it's just, boom, it's gone. That, that was the sport of volleyball for me. Once I started, it snowballed and it went really, really quickly. And so that included the recruiting process. I can now look back as someone older and also having gone through the recruiting process with so many athletes that I have myself recruited, I can look back and I can see all these pivotal moments and these decisions and what led me down what path. But in the moment, I was just surviving. I was just holding on for dear life and and seeing where things went. Now, the recruiting process was wonderful for me. I feel very, very fortunate that the people who were in my corner were looking out for me. And that includes all of the collegiate coaches that I was fortunate enough to talk with. Um, my parents were instrumental in helping me make a decision and not leaning me any direction. But the recruiting process is a lot of pressure to put on a 16, 17, 18-year-old and we still deal with it all the time. I mean, these athletes, even though these rules have changed now and they're not supposed to be committing until a little bit later, there's still 16 and 17-year-olds that are learning the information, trying to develop a feel for where they want to be, and ultimately making a decision. So for me, I had narrowed down to two or three schools that I was really excited to learn more about. And that's when the decision got really tough for me. I think the initial elimination of what felt right or what didn't feel right, that was the easy part. And then once I had it down to three final options, they were all really incredible options. And so the decision was tough. And I remember going to my parents for advice and to their credit, they purposefully 
stayed back. They helped me process, but they didn't push me down any path. There was no part of this decision that was made because it's what they wanted me to do. They gave me the tools to sort of figure out what I wanted. And ultimately, (laughs) the things that they said were just pick one. They're all awesome. They're all really great options. And I'm sure you're going to go do great things wherever you go. Follow your gut. As cheesy as that is, like just boil it down to what you feel is right and go with that decision. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece that we still instill in a lot of our, our athletes that we're talking to, let's say the club coaches are helping guide an athlete through the recruiting process. And even myself on the collegiate side, when I'm recruiting a player, we always like to remind them that volleyball is finite. This is a limited timeline that you have in this sport at the highest level. And unfortunately, that timeline could end at any point. It might be two weeks into your freshman year and you sustain a career-ending injury. Hopefully not, and that's <laughs> definitely not uh, the ordinary thing that happens, but it's possible. Or maybe your junior year, or maybe you play all four years and then decide to not pursue playing professionally. Or maybe you play professionally and, like myself, get a few years under your belt, and then because of medical information, you have to stop. Or maybe you're one of the few very fortunate athletes that plays four years through college, that plays professionally, that has a beautiful career with the national team, volleyball is still finite. At some point, it ends. Mm -hmm. And so circling back to the recruiting process, my parents asked me, as I have as a, a collegiate coach, asked players that I'm recruiting, if you take volleyball out of the equation, where do you want to graduate from? Where do you want to grow up? Where do you want to develop as a human being And ultimately, what name do you want to wear on that sweatshirt that you're going to inevitably put on and go to high school in and show off to all your friends? Where do you want to graduate from? And for me, that was the point where the decision left my hands. It was simple at that point. I knew hands down that I wanted to go to and graduate from UCLA and be a Bruin for the rest of my life. Not a bad choice, bud. I'm pretty happy with it. Now, I do have, I wouldn't call them regrets, but aspects of the decisions that I I made, the roads that I did not take, Mm -hmm. that look very enticing, especially in retrospect, looking back and seeing the success that some of those teams had. But I'm still unbelievably happy with my decision, and I would make it a hundred times over. I mean, that's, that's all that we can really ask for, right? Like, it's it's something I say to my clients really often that no decision is ever perfect, right? But what is the decision that you can live with? Mm. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, you know, thankfully you can live with that. I lived with it and I love it. So tell us a little bit more about your time at UCLA. So there, for those in the volleyball world, you were there at the, at the same time as the legendary Al Skates. What was it like being at UCLA and playing for such a storied program? Everybody who's ever met Al, whether it's for four years or for five minutes, has an Al Skates story. He is an absolute character. He's brilliant. He's one of the best scouts and and recruiting minds and, and practice planners that anyone has ever seen in the volleyball world. And he's also just a funny, wonderful guy. And so 
everybody who's ever met Al has an Al skate story. And I have four years of those. So my experience was pretty rad. I love that. Well, don't, don't leave us hanging. What's your Al skate story? Oh my goodness. Um, there are too many, uh, but one that comes to mind is we were starting up a serving drill and Al was pretty well known for being quiet at practice. He would come in, he would hang out in the corner, he would watch drills happen, he'd watch us compete. He didn't always give us a lot of feedback in the moment. His coaching style was very uh, results-based. So if you got thrown into the fire and you found your way out of it, then good for you. You're going to be on the starting court and ultimately on the starting six. And so Al wasn't a big talker. He would joke around with you, but he wasn't just constantly cracking stuff. So when he came up with a joke in practice, it resonated. And we were doing a serving drill. We got everything all rolled out. The ball carts got rolled out. And our libero, Tom Hastings, our libero walked over and grabbed a ball to go back and serve. And Al kind of chased him down and went up behind him and he smacked the ball out of his hands and he wagged his finger in Tom's face and he said, no soup for you. (laughs) (laughs) So I always liked that one. That one was pretty great. What was his logic behind that? He, He just didn't want the libero serving? Yeah, Lomero doesn't serve in the game. No soup for you. Uh, so what do you think is the most I, I, meaningful sounds trivial, but what are some important lessons that you think you turned, you t- excuse me, you took away from your time playing at UCLA? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think... Over the course of the four years that I was there, the most developmental experiences that I had taught me how to handle things myself. And that's not to say that the coaching staff wasn't involved, but like I mentioned, they were going to throw you in the fire. And if you could find your way out, then you were proving that you could be successful. It wasn't a coaching style where you were given infinite amounts of technical feedback and a very carefully designed roadmap on how to be better. The gym was talented. There were between 25 and 30 young men that were some of the best volleyball players in the country, and everybody wanted to be in that starting spot. And so if you could outplay the person next to you, you could have it. And... So over the course of four years, I learned quickly in the beginning, and it was instilled really deeply within me that I could get these things done myself because nobody else was going to help me along the way and really hold my hand through it. And that really developed a part of my personality that I did not have before. Not to say that I was babied, but I definitely did not have the most tumultuous upbringing or the most challenging path in my life. There were definitely some doors that were open to me just with the natural privilege of who I was, where I was born, what I looked like being six foot nine by the age of 16. I probably wouldn't have made that varsity team my sophomore year if I weren't just naturally six foot nine. Right. And they're like, well, this guy's never played before, but let's put him over there and help him figure it out. So I definitely did not have 
the biggest uphill climb my entire life and getting to UCLA and having to fight my way through that gauntlet of competition every single day was a really, truly transformative experience. Yeah. Well, one thing that even just stands out to me is that it's also a privilege to, to even be thrown into the fire, right? There has to be a level of trust that says, let's see how they handle it. And mm. as a, as a coach, I, I feel like you, you get this on a, on an even more intimate level now, knowing that they're capable. And also if it does get to a place where maybe they're not fully ready, they being your, your players, knowing mm. how to also protect them from being overwhelmed. Certainly. And that's something that I've taken to heart a lot in my own coaching style in the collegiate world. Working with 18 to 22 year olds is one of the greatest joys and privileges that I have had in my life. Because for the most part, these are young men and women that are leaving their home for the first time. They are learning who they want to be when nobody else is watching, when there is no parent telling them exactly how to do every move. And they're developing into who they're going to become as adults for the rest of their lives. Mm. And relating back to what you just said, what I have loved about my role as a collegiate coach, it's not to be a parent. My role is not to parent these young men or young women, but it's to guide them and serve as a safety net. Mm. I'm going to let you make your own decisions and let you make mistakes. It is not my job to prevent mistakes from happening up to a certain point. We do serve as a safety net to help guide these young men and women down this life path to be better than they were when they started with us. And that includes failures. That's something that we've talked a lot about over the course of our conversations is that failure is not something to avoid. It's something that is necessary to come out the other side having learned and grown. And so what I takes a heart about being a collegiate coach is allowing them to make these mistakes in an environment where they know that the ultimate cost and the ultimate failure is never going to be devastating. Right. When you talk about failure, even, even finding new ways of thinking about it, right. Or new definitions Mm -hmm. about what failure is. Failure is not you lose a match now you can never play this sport again, but as you, I, I love the word necessitate. It necessitates growth. Mm-hmm. Growth never happens in the comfort zone. Absolutely, yeah, man. So, even going back then about your your time as a player and thinking about your own fires, are there any particular moments that stand out for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are plenty of stories, but just the first couple that come to mind are are UCLA-related. They're Al Skates-related. My freshman year, I'm training with the team in the fall, and we hit winter break, gearing up for the season starting in January or February. And so this is still very early in my college playing career experience. And Mind you, I've grabbed onto this train and being pulled 100 miles an hour down the tracks. I don't know anything. I know nothing. I'm just showing up trying to not bounce the ball off my face and out of bounds. 
And I think I'm doing a decent job of fooling people. And so we're training and we're getting closer to this tournament that we went to almost every year. We would go up to Canada and play some Canadian teams because their schedule put them right in the middle of their season when we were doing our preseason training. So you would get the opportunity to head up and play a team that was seasoned, that they were in their groove and playing really well, and it would really test your mettle on where you at right now. So we're getting ready to head up to Calgary, and we're a couple of days out, and somebody says something about having a passport, which I did not have. (laughs) And the upperclassman pulled me aside. He's like, did you need a passport? And I was like, man, I'm a freshman. I like, I probably served under the net that day. Like I'm just trying to figure it out. There's no way that I'm being put on the travel roster to go to this tournament. And the upperclassman goes, no, you're, you're going, you're on that team. You've been on the starting six for the last four drills that we did. You're going, you need to figure out how to get a passport. I'm now (laughs) less than 48 hours away from departure. So I finished practice that day. I sprint back to my dorm. I don't even think I went to class that day. I'm just trying to put out this fire that I've been thrown into. And thankfully, the federal building in Los Angeles, I think there's only like two in the entire state. And one of them is across the street from UCLA. (laughs) I walk across the street, go to the federal building, find out I need passport photos. So I walk back across the street, go to cvs and get my headshot done take those photos into the federal building expedite beg with the person i walked out with a passport 30 minutes later i I show up the next day after figuring out that i'm on the travel roster when we're ready to depart and i've got my bag and i walk past the coaches and i'm like yeah what's up got my passport i knew all along yes totally fine no (laughs) nobody ever told me anything so thank you to that upperclassman who saved my butt because otherwise i would not have gone to that tournament because i did not have a passport and maybe i wouldn't have had the career that i had no soup for you would have probably been al's (laughs) retort well the next story ironically enough was at that tournament that same year and this was my first experience with collegiate volleyball again i'm Mm -hmm. trying to survive in practice but there were a few other freshmen that were trying to figure it out there was some humanization of not being perfect because you're in a practice environment but we go to this tournament and we're in canada and first team we're playing i don't even remember it might have been the calgary team they've got a middle who's six ten 260 pounds, you know, shaved head. He's got the, you know, the clean big Mr. Clean look. And he is throttling volleyballs. He is bouncing wrist away, bouncing cut back. And it doesn't matter what you do. You dive into one of the two and he was running a little bit of a slower set. And so he would just wait to see where blockers would go, hit the other direction, bouncing volleyballs and al was trying to get the middles to to v block to iron cross so rather than jumping up and putting both of their hands in one spot you would just jet one as far as you could to the right and one as far as you could to the left and it's a hard thing to do because it feels like you're doing something wrong it feels like you're exposing your face which you totally are and well that's not how you're taught to block and yeah it's it's so counterintuitive 
Right. Like when, for those who don't know volleyball, like you are taught to go same direction and press at like almost like parallel, parallel your arms and just try to put pressure. But when you're going up against someone that advanced at hitting, they know how to hit around it. Exactly. And so Al is just getting increasingly more frustrated because this guy is just making us look silly. And again, not even expecting to have my number called at any point this weekend. He looks down the bench, he shouts for me, he subs me in. And right as I'm about to go in, he stops me, like puts his hand on my chest and grabs my jersey. And he looks me dead in the eye and he says, if you do one thing out there, I want you to V block that guy go get him and like shoves me onto the court (laughs) and wouldn't she know it the guy who's bouncing volleyballs within the first couple of points they set him and i was so hyper focused on just doing that one thing that he asked me to do i probably was standing in the wrong spot half the time i probably didn't go to block when they set the ball out to the outside i probably left my teammates hanging a bunch of times But in the first few points, they set that guy and I did what Al told me to do. And I went up and I V blocked and it must have been luck. But I was also a pretty big dude and I got a stuff block. And Al remembered that for four years. I remember him talking about that. And I know that it got me out of some trouble, got me out of some hot water. (laughs) Wow. And that was Can definitely I, an early fire that I got thrown in that yeah. I learned how to get through. And and that was the case where I was given the tools to figure my way out. I just had right. to do it. I had to get out of my own way. The the first question that popped into my head is then, wh- what did that experience mean to you then? As, as that is your truly introduction to this new level of competition. And what did that mean for you as a freshman feeling like you're getting pulled by this train going 100 miles an hour mm. to, to be thrown into the fire and come out safe? Yeah, it's a phenomenal question. And as you ask it, I think I'm coming to a realization that this type of experience, this type of moment happened a lot to me over the course of my career. So initially, what that meant to me was, this is so cool. I was the proudest little boy, and I looked back over to Al, and I was so excited for his approval. Mind you, he was like moving on to the next point and (laughs) barely cared. But he saw it, he remembered it. That's not true, by the way, right? Because you just said, no, he remembered that for four years. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was very good in that way. But I think a deeper and more important answer to your question is that experience gave me the confidence to keep trying and working hard for the rest of that match, which then earned me the start for the next match the next night. And I ended up playing for the rest of that tournament that weekend. Right on. Which then built my confidence and allowed me to go back to the practice gym and work harder with a clearer understanding of what was expected of me, but more importantly, with just a little bit of confidence. And that confidence, that comfort in my own abilities, that, that trust that I would be able to find my way through allowed me to take bigger risks as I continued to develop 
which allowed me to develop more quickly. And I think that those moments cannot be emphasized enough in the development of a young athlete because so much of what we have the potential to do depends on the cards that were dealt and the environment that we're put in and how confident we are as we go trying to achieve those dreams. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And then you have this great career at UCLA. And after you graduate, you start getting some interest from some professional clubs in Europe. Tell us what what that was like for you. Playing professionally and living in Europe is hands down one of the top five most influential experiences of my life. Yeah. I cannot advocate enough if one has the opportunity to go live somewhere unfamiliar and uncomfortable. You learn about the culture, even if it's just a different state or a different city, but you're putting yourself in an environment that is not what you grew up with. It's not what you are most familiar with. And it forces you outside of your comfort zone and forces you to develop in a different way. Now, as I went overseas and started playing, the first place I went was Greece and my contract was not very much money. And I did not get paid all that money because in general, the way business is done in Greece is a little bit different. And on top of that, it was 2012 and it was the height of the Greek economic crisis (laughs) and there was no money. There was no money anywhere. Um, So that was definitely challenging in its own right. But I think psychologically, the biggest two changes that I felt in that environment were one, this is no longer just a game. It is still a game, but this is now a job. This is something that your financial stability depends on. And it doesn't just depend on whether you show up or not. It depends on how good you are. It determines on the results that you get. And I've talked with a number of professional athletes over the years, especially former players in college that have gone on to play professionally. And that can be a big psychological barrier for some of us. And fortunately, I think the pressure for me was significantly lower because though the club that I played for historically is one of the powerhouse European clubs and their volleyball team was in Champions League finals and they were amazing, they had certainly fallen from grace by the time I got there. They were The, the, club, in, the club in Greece. The club in Greece, yeah. They were not yeah. competing for a top three spot. We were competing not to get relegated. For those of you who don't know, oh. getting relegated is when you take a last in conference and they kick your butt down to Division Two. So we were in a a very different environment. I wasn't making the money that I was promised. And so that emboldened me a little bit. And I was able to say, you know, well, screw you. Like I, I can play as well or as poorly as whatever. And it doesn't matter because you're not paying me anyway. But that was kind of a grace period for me on where I learned what it felt like to be a professional athlete. Even though it wasn't nearly as high stakes, I learned the structure and that allowed me to go into year two and year three a little bit more confident. Again, giving myself the ability to have that confidence 
it allowed me to go into year two and year three with a little bit more confidence of knowing what to expect. So that was great. And, you know, living in a beautiful hotel on the sand of the Aegean Sea, like hopping the balcony, running down the sand and taking a dip every morning after breakfast wasn't too bad either. Um, there, that, that sounds that sounds pretty terrible. Actually. Yeah, it was pretty awful. There may have been some correlation to how poor we were with the fact that we only practiced once a day for about an hour. Um, that might have had something to do with it. But in the meantime, I was reading a lot of books, drinking a lot of cappuccinos and swimming in the Aegean Sea a lot. So you find yourself then in Greece, you you have this year, it's a, it's a big adjustment, there's some good learning lessons, and then there's some trials and tribulations. And then you said, but in year two and three, that's when you started to find your groove. So is that when you then moved over to the club in Germany? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the experience my second and third year over in Europe was so profoundly different um, largely because of just reaching, let's say Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, you know, I had taken enough reps and I had been around the game enough and I now had a year and then two years leading up to my final year of playing professionally where that truly is your only job is to be good at this sport. And so for the first time as a player, I started feeling like my head was a little bit further above water. I felt like this train that I had grabbed onto that was rocketing down the tracks wasn't going so fast anymore. Or even if it was going fast, I was able to look around and see where I was in time and space, which allowed me to focus in my efforts on where I was getting better and how I was getting better rather than just survival mode because that's truly what it felt like for four years at ucla for for first of all the two years in high school and playing club that's what it felt like for all four years at ucla and that's even what it started to feel like my first year playing professionally overseas was survival can i just keep up with these people that i'm playing with and then by my second and third year overseas i i started feeling a little bit further ahead of the curve which is when my time with the national team picked up a little bit and yeah, I was able yeah. to surround myself with even more people that I had to feel like I just had to keep my head above water. But at least I knew my own level of play and my own goals as an athlete, even if it was now in context of the national team of these men who had won a gold medal in 2008 right. and you know were amazing athletes top to bottom. I mean, that entire roster is the people who are the best of the best of the best, which it should be. I mean, it's the national team. So that was sort of the trajectory for me as it got into my second and third year playing pro is that the biggest difference was just that I started to feel like my head was a little further above water. Yeah. And then tell us about that last year when you were playing. I know that... Mm-hmm one of the the highlights was that your team actually won the German cup. Yeah. Again, like I was mentioning earlier, that team, the Friedrichshafen team with that roster, yeah. those boys are my family. They were my brothers. We got along so well. 
Our setters were Ben Tenuti, who just set the French national team to a gold medal. Oof. The backup setter was Simone Tischer, who was the German national team setter for multiple Olympics. The other middles with me, one of them was the national team middle for Argentina. One of them was voted best blocker in the London 2012 Olympics. Um, the outside hitters, one of them is this uh, star of the Dutch national team now, uh, who's playing for one of the best Italian clubs in the world. And then our libero wow. is Genia Grabenikov, who has been voted best libero in the world year in and year out at every major international tournament, voted the best libero of the Olympics, won a gold medal with France. I mean, this wow. team was stacked. And I was, you know, in this environment learning, trying to be better, trying to compete for playing time, trying to see what is, what's it all about playing in Champions League. And yeah, ultimately, the end of that year, we made the final eight of Champions League, which was not quite as far as we had hoped, but it was still nothing to scoff at. Not at all. We won the German Cup, which was an incredible match played in front of 15,000 fans and won a gold medal there. And then we won the German League as well, the, the Deutscher Meister. And uh, so walking away that last season with a couple of trophies, a couple of gold medals, and all this experience of playing with some of the best players in the world, I could not have asked for more from my final year. Wow. Uh, you know, I'm... I'm taken aback because one thing that I don't I don't think we really get that much exposure in the US at least just based on geography I'm curious what it was like for you to go to Europe and then now you're immersed with so many amazing professionals from all over the world I mean mm -hmm. throughout Europe but also South America what was that cultural exposure like for you important and humbling it's yeah really incredible to have the experience of living overseas and finding out that the rest of the world doesn't think usa is as great as we do and learning that that doesn't make them right but it doesn't make them wrong it doesn't make me wrong for thinking that the usa is great but it also educates you in such a way to understand that there's more out there and that there are different perspectives on how the world works. And so stepping aside from the easy differences like food differences, cultural differences, language barriers. Yeah, yeah. Just learning different perspectives from people all around the world. Because as soon as you're done practicing, you practice for two hours in the morning, two to three hours in the afternoon, do some weightlifting, there's still a lot of day left. And you yeah. hang out with your team and you spend time with their families and you have dinner with them and you spend holidays with them and you find out about all the differences in their upbringing because for each person on that team, they all have a very unique life experience of what the world is like and the lens that they view it through. And they've had those experiences on the way to getting to right where you are right now too. Yeah. But the paths on how every individual gets there are very different. Totally. I always find it so amazing. The intersecting of where you're all from and how you intersect at the the time in each of your respective lives. Some of some of you were 
en route to winning a gold medal. Some of you have been designated the best libero in the world, and there you all are trying to find commonality mm. and, and intersect with one another to build something great, which is evident that you all did that season. Mm. Yeah, that was a that was a stellar group of young men, and I, I cherish their friendship and how I will always feel a part of their families. That's beautiful. Well, Nick, you mentioned already that that, that was your last year. I, I was wondering if you'd be open to sharing about why that was your last year when there was so much going in terms of how celebrated and accomplished you were. You were on the national team, you were on this stellar club in Europe, and you've already made mention that that you did end up retiring after that season. Mm. Yeah, first off, thank you. Uh, I appreciate your kind words. I never seem to see my career quite in the same light. I definitely feel that there were some successes, but I felt like I was working to hang on to that train still a little bit. I felt like there were times where I didn't deserve to be where I was or have the success that I'd had, or maybe I had ridden on somebody's coattails a little bit, but ultimately, um, I was getting there and we were in the gym in the summer of 2014, the year that the U S team won world league. And we went to the world championships in, in Poland and, uh, things were going well. And I flew back over to Germany and was my, with my club team there. And about three quarters of the way through the season, I got a call from the team USA doctors. And there was a cardiologist who had volunteered his time to do imaging on all of the athletes. And my images had raised some concern for the doctors and they collaborated with one another and came to the conclusion that I needed to cease competing immediately. And so I was alone in Germany. I was in my apartment. I had finished my morning training, uh, you know, stretching, napping, having some lunch, refueling for my big afternoon training when I got the phone call. And uh, the athletic trainer and the doctors and everybody who was on the call informed me that I had to stop playing immediately. They had found an issue in my heart that concerned them and that that morning's training would be the last professional volleyball that I would ever play. And the rest of that day was a bit of a blur. Um, I remember asking a whole lot of questions. Uh, I remember snapping into a little bit of a um, problem-solving mode rather than being devastated immediately and trying to figure out how I could outthink the problem. How could I ask someone else for their opinion or how could we do the imaging again and get to the real results and a little bit of disbelief. But ultimately coming to terms with the fact that I, for for the rest of my life, I could never do anything athletic at a hundred percent. I couldn't run a mile as fast as I could. I couldn't, you know, run up a flight of stairs as fast as I can. I could never play any sport or weightlift or do anything in that regard at a hundred percent. And so that was really challenging for me. 
because I had wrapped up so much of my identity in being an athlete. I was an athlete. I, I was an athlete before I was anything else. And so as you know, I mean, as I'm sure you deal with, with a lot of the athletes that you help, transition is hard. Transitioning out of your athletic identity can be really challenging. And so I took a few months. I stayed with my team. I stayed and supported them for the rest of the season. I traveled to a couple of the away games. I stayed through all the playoffs. I stayed through the the finale, the, the gold medal match. And then I even tacked on a few extra weeks, traveled around Europe with some friends, and really kind of made a big last hurrah of it. And, yeah. uh, and then I flew back to the States to figure out what comes next. And, uh, it was in that time while I was in Europe that I got to think and process and learn. And then when I got back to the States, I also took a few more months of figuring out what was next. Yeah. And, uh, and that's when I got into coaching full-time. That's when I learned more about what I wanted to do full-time. I definitely want to talk about coaching if if it's okay with you just to kind of rewind it a bit. Yeah, absolutely. What was that that process like for you? I know you said you were trying to logic your way through it and go, okay, nice try. Let, let's consult with some others. When at the end of the day, that that was the ultimate decision was that you did have to retire prematurely from volleyball. What was just that like, I mean, you mentioned a few things that, that you were alone, you were, that you felt alone, I should say. You were in Europe. What was that process like for you, even just kind of recounting it now? Mm. Yeah, I'd actually rephrase the way you just put it. I was alone. I was very much physically alone. Um, yeah, okay. But I didn't feel alone. I felt an immense mm. amount of support from my family. I felt an immense amount of support from USA Volleyball. Um, my teammates, my my European brothers, my family there came over immediately. As soon as practice ended yeah. that night, they went to the nicest steakhouse in town. They ordered a bunch of really great food and they brought it over immediately. And we, we hung out and spent the evening together. Um, That's beautiful. And so I was very well supported and yeah. at the time, I think I was more resilient and more capable of handling the challenge than maybe at any other point in my life. And I think some of that had to do with ignorance, too. I was young. I was happy. Nothing had ever gone wrong for me before. And so I just approached the entire situation with the attitude of, okay, this is what it is, and we're going to have to move ourselves through it. And something else in life will inspire me just as much. And if I can't go at something 100% physically, I'll find a way to go at something 100% mentally or 100% emotionally and yeah. work as hard as I can, but in a different way. So it was challenging. I think looking back, it was more challenging than I allowed myself to feel in the moment. But like you said, it wasn't the end. It was never going to be the end. It was the end of one career that eventually led into this new career. And you said, if I, if I couldn't go 100% physically, I still got a lot, of, I still got a lot to give. Mm-hmm. So 
100% thinking, 100% emotions. It sounds like the world has found a new great coach. I appreciate that. Coaching, I think, just like the sport of volleyball, coaching has been far better to me than I have to it. I'm trying to give back. I'm trying to instill anything that I've learned in people who are excited to learn it. But I am far from an expert, and I still think that I am reaping more benefits than I am sowing. Well, let me just be your hype man. You're, you're pretty good at this stuff. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> well, because, I mean, and this is where I think this is the beauty of, of what we put out into the world. We, we tend, to, tend to get back, right? You got into coaching because of a connection you had at UCLA, mm -hmm. right? So do you mind telling the audience a little bit about that? Yeah, it was in that time after I retired and I came home. I think I flew back to the States in May or maybe early June. And I was sitting on my couch on my butt trying to figure out what I was going to do for what felt like months and months. In reality, I think it was only probably about four or five weeks. But uh, I got a call. I got a reach out from a colleague, uh, somebody who's become a close personal friend over the years, Mike Seeley at UCLA. And uh, he reaches out to me and says, hey, man, you know, I heard the story. I'm so sorry. I know you're sitting on your butt back in San Diego not doing anything right now. Would you consider coming up and being our volunteer assistant for, you know, the, the upcoming season, which I think that year was the fall of 2015? And we met at Swami's Cafe in, in North County, and we talked through it and what it would look like and what he was looking for from me. And I jumped at the opportunity. And I remember moving back up to LA a, a month or so later. And like it was yesterday, I remember the moment that I fell completely head over heels in love with this career, with coaching. Again, I had already been coaching. I liked giving feedback to athletes. I liked helping develop young players. But the first tournament that we played that year with UCLA was the Outrigger Tournament at the University of Hawaii. Pretty, pretty awesome place to start the year. You're hanging out at the beach. You go cruise over, play a couple of volleyball matches, and then you go back. And to Hawaii, the state of Hawaii is amazing. Like the, the people, the culture, and they love volleyball there. They absolutely do. And so I'm helping coach this tournament, which that first tournament was Outrigger in Hawaii. And... One of the first matches we played was against Hawaii, primetime match in the Stan Sheriff Center, which is this beautiful domed circular arena that seats, if memory serves, like 10,000 fans. And they pack it to the brim because like you said, volleyball is huge in Hawaii. They absolutely yeah. love the sport. They are fanatics in the truest sense. And so I'm sitting there coaching this team with, with these colleagues that I'm learning all about and learning about the game of volleyball through them. And I feel really fortunate they had given me a lot of leash as a first-year volunteer coach. And so I got to work a lot with our blocking systems. I got to work a lot with our middles. And I just remember, like it was yesterday, standing there on the court, calling out blocking signals to our blockers, telling people when to go where and what to look out for. And I'm looking around this arena of 10,000 screaming fans, and I'm recognizing that the adrenaline that I experienced as a player didn't have to die with 
playing volleyball professionally. I was feeling that same anxiety, those same butterflies, the same excitement that I would feel stepping onto the court as a player. I was feeling that as a coach. And I got to, through my eyes off the court, watching the game from a distance, try to instill anything that I was seeing or anything that we had worked on, on these incredibly talented young women. And I was falling in love with the game right then and there. I loved the sport. I always thought it was really great. But that was the moment when volleyball and coaching as a career completely latched its talons into me. And I was done. I was done for. Wow. I I mean, you you already said it. What a beautiful place to fall in love with with your sport all over again. So uh, I'll, I'll ask, kind of come in full circle. You talked about how meaningful as a coach, or excuse me, as a player, being thrown into the fire by your coaches, knowing that you, you have that safety net. Are there any moments as a coach where you've been able to offer that same support as you threw your players into the fire and allowed them to, to build that tolerance and that independence, that autonomy? 100%. And it happens in these little micro actions all throughout the course of the year. Starting a freshman in the first match of the year. Um, subbing somebody in after they have recovered and rehabbed from an injury, but they've now psychologically got this hurdle to overcome where they're sometimes not sure if they can do it or not. And we know that they can. We're not putting them in a dangerous situation when they haven't healed all the way or anything like that. But pushing people a little closer to that edge so that they can feel those same stressors, so that they can go through those same challenges and find their way out the other side, which galvanizes them, which makes them stronger and and allows them to develop more, not just as players, but as human beings. Yeah. So yeah, that happens all the time. And I've learned that it doesn't have to be a big flashy action that makes that athlete feel like they've overcome something important and now they're a little bit more confident. It happens day in and day out. Two things stand out to me. One, I love the the idea of these micro interactions, right? It doesn't have to be at the outrigger tournament in front of 10,000 people. Most of these opportunities happen when it's just you and the players. Exactly. The coaching staff and the players. Two, galvanizes. That's a UCLA word. That's a great word. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, buddy. So the way that you and I have talked about setting up our podcast, so our podcast is called Bump, Set, Psych. And it's also the framework for our structured questions that we have each week. So when you think about your experience in peak performance, bump, what did you have to bump? What did you have to sacrifice? Set, what did you have to prioritize or promote? And psych, any advice that you received along the way that you want to pay forward to our audience? And so we'll just go one at a time. What did you have to bump? My experience, my first year playing overseas really set the foundation for me of what was required of me to be really good at this. And I worked very hard in college, but I also focused a lot of my energy in a lot of different places. I had a great friend group, both in and outside of volleyball. I was primarily focused on my education. And so going to play overseas and simplifying my life, 
my first year, I didn't have good internet in the hotel that I lived in. And I didn't have an international cell phone plan. Right. And FaceTime wasn't a thing. Yeah. So I went long stretches of time of just being by myself and having to watch film and think about practice the next day. So long-winded answer, mm. what did I have to bump? I had to get rid of distractions. I had to get rid of all wow. these other pieces of my life that were really important. But to get to my highest level of peak performance, I had to get rid of some of those things, even the ones that were good. Mm. I had a lot less communication with my family. I had a lot less interesting food choices. I had a lot less time spent going to the beach, surfing, playing other sports. I had to, to sacrifice and get yeah. rid of distractions. Yeah. Okay, so what did you have to set? What did you have to prioritize? I think that I really had to prioritize seeing my body as a tool to get the job done that I needed to get done. So I really needed to prioritize taking better care um, and focusing in a little bit more on my diet. I have always been a lanky, skinny person. And so I can really get away with eating garbage and it doesn't show up on my body. But I started to recognize how it was affecting my performance. So I had to eat a little better. I had to cut back on some of the uh, the pastries that I love so much. Especially in Europe. <laughs> I did live above a bakery in Germany. So... Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> I would just pop down in the mornings and... I'd take my book and I'd walk into the bakery. They would make me a coffee. I'd grab a pastry or two and have a little breakfast sandwich with some egg and some ham. And I would sit in the bakery and have it. And then I'd just walk back upstairs to my room. When you said you lived above, I, I kind of had this image in my head where you like, you're like a bunk bed and like literally like hang over <laughs> and go, oh, hi, I'll take my breakfast sandwich. That's what it felt like sometimes. I mean, I would just like walk down my stairs and around the corner and I was in the bakery. So pretty good. Mm -hmm. But I did have to work harder to put on a little bit of weight so that I could, using the force of my body, get the job done that I needed to get done. And, yeah. you know, I, I guess body and mind learn how to use both of those a little bit more efficiently. Like we talked about when I was over in Greece, I had to advocate for myself. I had to corner the president of the club after a match and say, Hey man, like I'm hungry. <laughs> I need money yeah. for my food. I'm dead broke. And I'm an extremely unconfrontational person. I am the last person who's going to pick a fight with anybody. And sometimes the person who I defend the least is myself. And so I had to be a little bit better at advocating for myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well said. And then the last one, psych, any meaningful advice that you received or, or if not that you received anything that you want to share now with our audience? Mm, yeah. Uh, no soup for you. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, uh, credit to Marie Zydek, my, my close friend and a coach that I worked with at DePaul University for many years. Um, one of her favorite go-to quotes, and this is, I think, so important to remember as we explore the depths of how to be better and how we can improve ourselves and mental performance and emotion and all these other things. Volleyball is not rocket science. And that's 
such a funny comment because sometimes we treat it as such. We stat and we scout and we go down all these rabbit holes and we do have to find creative ways to make ourselves better, but not at the expense of enjoying the game that we are here to play. Volleyball is not rocket science, guys. It's pretty cut and dry when you really boil it down. And that, as funny and as joking as that comment usually is, it's true. And it's it's kind of sneaky yeah. profound. Yeah. I, I personally love it. I, I love the idea of this is a game. Let, let's, let's enjoy it. We should. We all should. Well, Nicholas... Shane? I only say that to you when I'm being serious. I know you can't expand my name. Shaner. <laughs> oh, don't. <laughs> Please don't. Um, dude, I'm so excited to be doing this podcast with you. It is, uh, we've known each other a long time and it's a treat to get to do this with, with not only one of my best friends, uh, you, but that we have another best friend, Wes Koseki, who's our executive producer. So I'm really, really looking forward to doing this with you both and getting the chance to interview such amazing people on this pod. Yeah, really fun start. Uh, be completely honest with you, I'm a little uncomfortable being in the spotlight like this. So I'm excited <laughs> that our next week's interview is going to be you in the spotlight and we'll get to learn all about you. But yes, what sir. a great way to start. And I cannot wait to start getting some really impressive people who perform at the highest level into this conversation, ask them questions about how they got to where they are, what they found was important, what they would do differently if they had the opportunity to do it again. It's just going to be fun. And podcasting is not rocket science, Nick. Couldn't have said it better myself, Shane. <laughs> all right, buddy. We'll see you all next week. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for tuning into Bump Set Psych, your go-to podcast all about peak performance. Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bump Set Psych Pod. That's Bump Set Psych Pod. This episode was produced by Wes Kosecki, Shane Sines, and Nick Vogel. It was edited by Wes Kosecki. BSP is hosted by Nick Vogel and Shane Sines. Music and sound design by Evan Simone. Special thanks to our graphic designer, Sophia Yampolsky. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>